All right, I'm going to ask a question that I know the men in the room won't be honest about. How many of you watch HGTV? Just fess up right now. <clears throat> I see those hands. HGTV is a wonderful thing. We don't, we don't watch a ton of TV, and we haven't watched a ton of these shows, but we have, Marcy and I have discovered something that's really got us kind of distressed because my kids love pool masters and treehouse masters, both. So we've recognized the fact that we're going to have to build a treehouse that they can dive into a pool in our backyard. You know, it's wonderful. We have an addiction to reality TV. And as reality TV goes, uh, as reality TV goes some of these home renovation things are, are a, little more, a little more pure and a little more enjoyable than some of the um, other shows that I won't even mention the name of them because uh, they're just not worth mentioning in the worship service. But as you watch someone go into uh, a place like Detroit, I don't know if we've got many Michiganders here, but the city of Detroit, you go to some parts of the city of Detroit, it looks like it's been through a war. And then you see these people from these TV shows, they descend upon a project like an army, and they take this shanty, torn down, dilapidated, and destroyed home, and they return it to a glory that it didn't even have when it was brand new. And they've reclaimed something that has been a blight, that has been condemned. And there's something that's just right for us to kind of rejoice in that. Because I think in our hearts, we all kind of long for rediscovery, re- rediscovery and remodeling in our own, our own lives. You know, we realize that we've added some compartments to our life that maybe quite aren't up to code. And if we could go back and redo some things, well, we might have built with better material, metaphorically speaking, than we did. And so there's something right, not just in seeing the beautiful project, but in not, not just seeing beauty created, but in this whole idea of being remade and being made something beautiful. We see tired old homes, tired old lives, and we long for the life-saving, transforming power of the gospel to move the bus and to see the new thing that God has done. And the truth is, when it comes to the home improvement project that is our life, we are all works in progress, not finished yet. The renovation continues. And I think when we talk about the renovation that God's grace brings, the transformation that happens uh, as a result of the resurrection, one of the areas where all Christians, all people, really, could see renovation is in the realm of their speech. How many of you have ever said anything that you regretted? One hand, two hands, two or three. Great. We'll have counseling for the rest of you because you lie. Um, (laughs) And that's a sin. The truth is, the words just flow out of our mouth. I don't know how many words you speak. Sociologists tell us if you're a woman. Who's laughing? If you're a woman, you might speak 40,000 words a day. If you're a man, it might be 10,000. So men, when you get home, she's just warming up, okay? Be prepared. That's the reality of it. So women, of the 40,000 words that you say, said yesterday, how many do you remember? Men, of the 10,000 words, is your percentage much higher? Because it's less work. No. Men are even more forgetful about, I said that? Yes, honey, you did. At least I hear that in my house. And so when we talk about the life-transforming power of the gospel, we all need some home renovation done in the realm of our speech. That's a very practical avenue for our discipleship. 
And as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to be all over the scriptures this morning. So they'll be uh, on, the, um, on the screen. Uh, we're going to hop around to a variety of different places. But the very first thing that we have, to, we have to realize is we have to recognize that there really is a problem with our words. There is a problem with our words. We've all said stuff that, you know, we wish that we, we, wish that we didn't. You know, we're kind of glad that we don't live like in cartoon land where what you're thinking shows up in a balloon above your head. That would be terrible. I've got enough to repent of for the stuff that actually comes out of my mouth, let alone the stuff that I'm thinking. So thank you, Jesus, for not making the thought clouds a reality. Do you know, even without the thought clouds, the words get about to your teeth and they're on their way out and you go, I shouldn't say this. Does that stop you? Oh, no. You just let it rip. And it's after the fact that you go, ooh, shouldn't have done that. That's going to hurt. There's going to be some repair. So we've been there. And the truth is that when we think about our speech and the problem with our words, our words are capable of great good. Who's received an encouraging word? Man, it's like giving health to your bones when you hear something good. But not only are our words capable of great good, they can be used for vicious evil. Listen to the way God's word talks about it in James um, chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. God's word says this. It says, so too. Though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts of great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness, and it's placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell itself. Every sea creature, every reptile, every bird, every animal is tamed and has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth, my brothers. These things should not be this way. We bless God, we curse man. There's great good, there's vicious evil. And that's not even the worst news. The worst news is, kind of our second, second bullet point here, the worst news is that our words ultimately come from our heart. Your words come from somewhere. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, that the words that come out of your mouth find their origin in your heart. The thing that makes you you, that's where it comes from. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. That's not good news, is it? You came to church to be encouraged. And I'm telling you that you've got hearts that betray you. That you may think about saying good things, but you actually say the things that come from your heart. Our hearts deceive us. Our hearts betray us. And we wish for better things, but we do the lesser things. And the, the end result is that the Bible says that in Matthew 12, 36, just a couple verses later, that we will give an account to God for every idle word we say. Matthew 12, 36. says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Now that word careless can be translated a variety of different ways. It can be idle words. It can be careless words. It can be lazy words. It can be useless words. So again, based on percentages, your 40,000 or your 10,000 words, how many of those words just kind of <clears throat> happened? Careless. 
not specifically evil, mean-spirited, or vicious, but careless. That, 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 that verse, Matthew twelve thirty-six, should be a heavenly reminder that we all need to walk around like this. Just to not be hasty to speak carelessly. I believe, truthfully, that there's more evil that is done by carelessness with the truth than there is for love of evil. Listen, we're church people. We're not, we, we don't try to be vicious, but are we careless with the truth? Because there's a ton of bad that can happen by just being careless. You don't have to love evil to be vicious. You can just be lazy. The good news this morning is that through the gospel and the grace that God gives us, there is a solution not only for our words, but for where our words come from, our hearts. When we come to Christ, the gospel works on our heart, not just our destiny. It seems like a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, the gospel is like a train ticket to take us to glory land. And it doesn't have anything to do with the here and now. But the truth is the gospel works on our heart, not just our destiny. So when we ask someone about their testimony, when you ask somebody, tell me about, tell me, tell me about your walk with Christ. We are not merely asking about an outward action that happened a long time ago. I walked an aisle, I got dunked, you know, I shook a preacher's hand, I, I prayed a prayer. That's important. That is part of the testimony. But what we're asking is, what is your vital experience with the Lord that both has changed and is changing you? And you know one way that God could be changing you, even today? Probably all of us. He could sanctify our speech one degree, and we'd all be better off for that. So how does God need to take his divine scalpel to your betraying heart to purify your words today? I don't know. Some of you probably communicate bitterly. You know, I I remember uh, working at the seminary with a guy who always sounded angry. I'm going to the bathroom. Okay, well, I hope you take care of all of your business there, (laughs) Mr. Angry Man. Um, Some people... You know, with your kids sometimes, you know, I I find this. When I'm doing homework, I can be a little driven. We've been working on this math problem for 32 minutes. Let's get it done! And sometimes I find that instead of looking at the paper, we need to make eye contact. You know, because tone and uh, stress, whatever, can communicate things. And I, I, I need to look them in the eye and communicate. We're in this together. Let's just work really hard for five more minutes and let's get this done. We can do it. Or at least you can. I can't. I stopped at third grade math, you know. <laughs> so let's try. And so there's just, I don't know what your foible is when it comes to your words or how you communicate, but I'm certain that God has some things for you to do. So we know that God wants our hearts, that that's where the problem is. It's not just with our words. It's deeper than that. And so how do we respond? What do we do? How do we join God in the process of our discipleship? Well, a lot of it begins with an attitude adjustment. And if you take a peek at this, um, I think the graph is the next slide. Make sure it works here. A lot of times when we talk about, uh, especially our speech, we'll take our speech because that's what we're talking about today. And we put ourselves on a graph from negative to neutral to positive. Um, Marcy and I had this really interesting thing. We went to Florida um, a couple weeks ago for spring break. Kids were out of school. We get into Florida, we start seeing the signs for like discount Disney tickets. They don't tell you you have to sell your soul to the devil to get them. So we stop, we stop and we meet Barney. And uh, 
Barney really wants us to, he wants to show us the world's most incredible timeshare. And he'll give us a really good deal on theme park tickets. And so, of course, you know, they need to kind of figure out, are you employed? You know, would you be able to actually pay for the timeshare if we should give you the tour? <clears throat> so he says, what do you do for a living? That's always an interesting question for me. Well, I'm a preacher. Oh. So Barney proceeds to tell me, well, I stopped cussing three years ago. <laughs> Way to go, Barney! You know, and um, he had gone to church, and unfortunately something stupid had happened. Somebody had said something unkind. And for the next 25 years of Barney's life, he didn't go to church. Because of somebody's words. And then he felt compelled to tell me what kind of words he uses. So, like, I guess he was letting me know he wasn't going to cuss me out if I didn't buy. You know, I'm like, okay, Barney. But it was an interesting conversation. Uh, the, the timeshare was not in God's providence for us, but the meeting with Barney was. You know, because we got a chance to talk to him. I said, well, Barney, you seem kind of proud of your language. By what basis did you make the decision that that was bad, and how do you figure out what is bad and good? He said, for me, the Bible tells me that. I have an objective standard but you don't go to church, you don't read the Bible. Why? Why is this important for you? Well, I don't know. You just want to be better than the next person? And so a lot of times when we talk about this, especially our speech, we take all the bad stuff, you know, like I don't use four-letter words, you know, or at least bad four-letter words. You know, so that must mean I'm over here and I'm good. I'm, I'm positive. No, 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 no. Just because you have gotten rid of the negative, the bad, doesn't mean you're good. At the very most, what that means is that you're neutral. And a lot of times when we talk about our sanctification, we're really impressed with neutrality. You think God's really impressed that you're not doing the bad things? That's good. That doesn't make you good. That just makes you not bad. And not bad is, is not good enough. And so when we talk about our sanctification, one of the things that is important for us is to not be satisfied with the negative or the neutral, but to push on for the new that God has created for us in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that when we come to Christ, he begins the process of doing heart surgery on us, and he changes our heart, and so he gives us new life in Christ. And that new life in Christ should emanate, should usher into a different kind of speech. We have received grace, we have inherited a new life from Christ, and Paul addresses this very specifically in Ephesians 4 verses 25 and 29. You'll see it on the screen here. God's word says this, since you have put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. We're part of the same body. We're supposed to tell the truth. Ephesians 4, 29, no foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need to give grace to those who hear. I love the way that sounds. Wouldn't it be awesome to know that this week, in your words, you have deposited grace into someone else's account? You have given grace to someone. Now, when we talk about giving grace, we think about God doing that for us. Well, we can't give, we don't dispense grace. Oh, yes, you do. You can certainly dispense law. You can certainly dispense condemnation. But you can dispense grace. And I love it because a lot of times we, have, we view Christianity as like this don't religion. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I love the way in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32 in the passage, he doesn't just give a big list of don'ts. He does something really interesting. For every vice, 
he lists a corresponding virtue. And he says, you know what? Put off lying. Put on speaking truth. He says, put off foul speech. Put on edifying, building up, grace-giving speech. And so he, he doesn't give us this big, long, neutral list. He balances, uh, uh, he balances it, and he says, take the bad thing and replace it with the good thing. Don't just cut out the bad, but press onto the new. And then he says this whole replacement, put on, put off, it's like a uniform. And your uniform will let people know what team you're on or what team you cheer for. I'm not going to make this a Clemson or South Carolina thing. Because y'all need to love one another. Take a peek at some of these up here. Look at that uniform. What's he do for a living? What does he do for a living? No, he's a sanitary engineer. Um, No, he's an astronaut. You can take it. Before I even ask the question, you see the picture, you go, absolutely, his uniform tells me what he does. He has a suit that lets him survive in a hostile environment. What's this guy do? Police officer. Either that or he works for the village people. Um, You tell, you can tell who they are by their uniform. Who's this guy? He's an actor. Yeah, he's an actor. Thank you. He's not a doctor. I got y'all. You can tell by the uniform. What about this guy? He's an FSU football player. So... uh, See, I told you I couldn't do the USC or Clemson thing. I would have gotten in trouble. Here's what the Bible says. When we talk about the, the continuum, the negative, neutral, the positive, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we have to replace the uniform that we were born with and dress like we're part of the team. Dress like we're part of the team. And what happens is we, we have all the exterior kind of mishmash of looking like a Christian, and then people hear what comes out of our mouth, and they're like, I didn't even know Christians knew those kind of words. And it's inconsistent. And what you're doing at that point is, I'm not going to take my shirt off, but you are taking off the uniform that God has given you and you're putting on your old, dirty, beat up, nasty, throw it away or burn it uniform. And so the Bible says, be consistent. Just dress like, dress like the team you belong to. And so in 25 and 29, he tells us, put off lying, put on truth speaking. Put off unwholesome speech, rotten speech. Unwholesome. What does unwholesome mean? It means rotten. So like when you go to the produce uh, department at your supermarket, you like the mushy apples? That's gross. You thunk the melons and your finger goes through and now you've got melon guts on your finger. Take that home for your kids. You know, Get the really nasty brown shriveled up bananas. We don't want rotten fruit. Yet we kind of grade ourselves on a curve when it comes to rotten speech. It's not wholesome. It's not good for anybody. And so it says specifically, put off lying, but this is generally anything that's foul. Anything that's foul. And here's the way you can tell if it's foul. If you have any doubts whether it's foul or not, put it in the foul category. Don't get close. You know, just don't do it. Put off lying. Put off anything that is rotten. We go back to James. And it's inappropriate for lips that confess Christ to curse their fellow man. To be angry, to be malicious, to slander, to be wrathful, to be harsh, to be contemptuous. It's not right. And if you look at the rest of the passage in verses 25 through 32, one of the things that we see is that our words are a tool 
for spiritual warfare, either bad or good. Listen to what um, Ephesians 5, 20, uh, 20, 31 says. I'm sorry. This is all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, Kylie, slander. It must be removed from you along with all malice. Verse 32 says, rather than all those bad things, be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Ephesians 4, 27. Don't give the devil an opportunity. So if you are engaging with God and actively trying to make God's grace effective in your life by your response, and you are putting off and putting on the right thing, what you have done with your words and your conduct is you have just made them a tool for the Holy Spirit to continue to purify you and to be someone that actually helps someone else with what you say and what you do. Your words, your actions can be a tool of the Holy Spirit. But listen to what else the Bible says. Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. It says don't give the devil an opportunity. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. When you don't cooperate with God's grace, when you take off the uniform that God has given you and put your old one on. Now your words and conduct are a tool for the devil. And when that happens, you grieve the Spirit of God that seeks to make you holy. The good news is that the Bible encourages very specific forms of communication. And we'll talk about that for our last and final point. In Ephesians 4.15, we see an important truth, and it's our very first point, that a redeemed tongue is loving in how it shares truth. A redeemed tongue is loving in how it shares truth. Ephesians 4.15 says this, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love, okay? That's the thing we're called to do. So when we are in the hard process of speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love is hard, okay? I can speak in truth, really easily, and it'll hurt your feelings. I can speak in love and not tell you the truth and not really do you any good. But joining the two of those together, speaking truth and love is hard. But what happens when we speak the truth in love is it helps us to grow in every way into Him. You should not be speaking today the same way you did when you first came to Christ. I, um, I had the opportunity to um, see my, both of my grandmothers uh, here uh, this month. Really a neat opportunity. And I was reminded of a story that illustrates not speaking the truth in love. And it happened when I was a young kid. It wasn't me, it was my sister. When you go to, so I'm allowed to tell it because she's nowhere close and that's what big brothers are supposed to do. Um, when you go to the beach, you know, we've got beautiful beaches here in South Carolina. They'll have a little kind of restroom area and they'll have external showers where you can kind of wash, you know, the, the sand off and, you know, it's halfway between the ocean and the parking lot, so you're not getting all the sand in your car because you never get all the sand out of your car when you go to the beach. And so I, <clears throat> I'm there with my grandparents. This is 30 years ago, 35 years ago. And they've got these little stalls. They've got, all these, they've got all these little showers, and then there's just a little wall, and then there's a shower, and then there's a little wall. So my grandfather and I are over here, and he's making sure, you know, I'm turning around, getting it all out, and he's, we're, we're washing up there outside. And my sister and my grandmother are in the next stall, and my my, my grandmother has um, some kind of genetic condition that uh, makes her a rather large woman. And um, I, in the stall next door, can hear my sister ask, and I'll keep this kind of PG, uh, Grandma, why is your gluteus so maximus? 
My mom goes, Heather Ray! My grandmother just laughs like grandmothers do. <laughs> you know, harmless. Her feelings aren't hurt, but it was a prime example of speaking the truth. Now, my sister's 38 years old, and she denies that that ever happened. And I didn't have an iPhone to record it, but I heard it straight. She said it. And she's embarrassed by it because you know what? If you speak the truth in love, you don't. You might think it, but hopefully you're sanctified enough not to ask it. And she just didn't have that filter because a five-year-old, a four-year-old, what are they going to do? They're going to ask whatever they see. And as a parent, you just go, sweet Jesus, help me not to kill him. <laughs> so, you know, speaking the truth is easy. It's easy. Speaking the truth in love requires some maturity in our speech patterns. And my sister realizes that now at 37. She didn't at five. She just thought, hey, there it is. Big, bold, going to ask, Grandma, what's going on? The truth is when we talk about speech control, the truth that we have to recognize is there will never be any speech control until Jesus has heart control. That's where our words come from. The issue is not washing your mouth out with soap. The issue is not going, oh, you know, you want to say it. The issue is letting God do the work on the interior so that those words just don't even come out. There's, there's no pathway, you know, they get stuck here somewhere. They just don't come out. They stop. And so we need Jesus to be in control of our hearts because when he is, then something as simple as our daily speech becomes a channel for grace and blessing to people around us. You just have to ask, how many people do you run into on a daily basis? And how many of them, if they were quizzed before they went to bed, say, hey, you ran into one of our church members today. Were they a blessing? Well, no. Were they a curse? No. They're neutral. I don't even remember them. That's not good enough. The Bible says we have an opportunity to be a blessing through our speech. So our speech is to encourage. We've seen we're to say things that are encouraging. We're to say things that are building people up. How do we do that? How do we do that best? Uh, A non-Christian can encourage someone, can't they? Absolutely. So as Christians, how is our encouragement to look different than what the rest of the world can do? Are we just simply giving out kind words? Or is there something qualitatively different that we are to do as believers? Well, I think this next point kind of helps with that. Because if we have a tongue that has been redeemed, our tongue will be different in its content. It's going to say different things. It's going to be different in its manners or its methodology. We're going to do things different. And it's going to be different in its goals than the world. So ask yourself, do I speak like the world speaks? Do I speak how the world speaks? Do I speak for the same goals that the world has? And this is by no means an exhaustive list. But let me just give you one resource that you have as Christians that non-Christians don't have. You have the word of God to speak to people. How many of you have ever, you know, you woke up and it's just been a bad day? No good, terrible, horrible, no good, terrible, bad day. And if God would put a believer across your path to just say, it's not that bad. You've got God's spirit. He's obviously doing a work in your life. And while you may not like the circumstances that you're in, He's creating character. He's helping you to persevere. He's not abandoned you. And then that terrible, no good, very bad day doesn't look so terrible, no good, very bad anymore. It's a little bit better. Because now you've got a brother or a sister who understands and is caring for you. And you know what? 
One of the reasons I think the, I think the church is so weak is we don't have the capacity to speak God's word to people outside the church. And the reason we don't have the capacity to speak God's word to people outside the church is because we don't practice speaking God's word to people in the church. The conversation that happens at church is all news, weather, and the sports. Oh, yeah, did you see Hillary's running? That's great to set your sights low, but God has given us a feast of things to talk about to encourage our souls, not depress our hearts. And so we don't use the word to talk about, we don't use the word in our words. There we go, I saw you coming. Did you get my music stand? Ken always looks out for me, because that's the second time you've, you've almost had to keep me from falling. I need to not lean on it. Well, here's another thing. How do we, enc- how do we use our words to encourage, to go from negative to neutral to positive? Um, how many of you have ever said, I know you have, there's going to be hands all over the place, it's going to look like a Billy Graham crusade. Um, how many of you have ever told someone who has a problem, I will pray for you? Buses will wait. Love counselors at the front. Thank you. No, um, you say, hey, basically here's what you're saying. At some point in the future, when you're not around, if I remember, I will pray for you. Is that what you're saying? Maybe not quite so negatively, but yeah. If I remember, at some point in the future when you're not around, I'm going to pray for you. You know what you can do? You can do that, and, you, and then make sure you do it, because then you're lying, and that's a sin, and then you need to go back and apologize to the person the next time you see him. Because what you do is the next time you see him, you're like, oh, man, there's Chris. God bless him. Chris prayed for you this week, man. You know what you can do? At that moment, you can say, Ed, sounds like you're having a bad week. I am. Let me pray for you right now. Put your hand on his shoulder and say, God, strengthen him for what you're calling him to do. Ed's a precious brother, and I hate to see him discouraged. And so God, help me to be a brother that lifts him up consistently and help, help him. Now, Ed, I'll ask you, which would you rather have? Me praying for you at some point in the future, if I remember, um, when you're not around? Or would you rather me pray with you right there on the spot? Wouldn't it be an amazing thing? It, it, and listen, there's 300 churches in Rock Hill. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if every time you saw someone who was a member of Northside Baptist Church in the supermarket, at the gas station, at the football game, they, were, they had their hand on somebody's shoulder and they were praying for them. And that was the reputation that we had, that we were encouraging people. You know, I got a dilemma at work. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let's pray. That's one of the ways we can use our words to help people, to encourage people, say nice things, to, to smile. That's encouraging. I'd much rather get a smile than a frown, wouldn't you? To learn how to be gentle, like you're dealing with a kid, to be gentle with people in their problems, to learn how to laugh. You know, the Bible says that laughter is strong medicine. It'll, it'll, it'll fix you up just having a good laugh, maybe in spite of yourself. Learn how to look for the good. Some of you are really good at looking for the bad. You know, some of you, yeah, I don't, it's, it's half empty, and it's probably unfiltered dirty water, you know? <laughs> there are just some people, that's their inclination. Yeah, it's probably not even water. It's hydrochloric acid. You drink it, you'll die. You know, it's negative. Learn how to look for the good. Learn how to be charitable. When you have somebody that you know and something's going on in their life that you have a question about, don't immediately jump to judgment. Give a brother the benefit of the doubt. Be charitable. That's one of the ways you can use your words. Don't say bad things. Look for ways to find evidence of God's grace in people's lives. I shared this in the first service. Rob Rainey is in the hospital, and uh, he's doing well. He's recovering. And uh, um, I got a report, I guess it was yesterday, he's invited four people who work at the hospital to come to his church. He can't be here. 
but if he can send four people to worship in his place, that is an evidence of God's grace in Rob's life. So when you see Rob, you can say, Rob, man, way to go. Being in the hospital stinks. But if you've got to be there, be there for Jesus. Do it right. And, and find ways to say, hey, listen, um, yeah, I know you, you haven't been in worship for the last three weeks. It's good to see you back. It's good to see you back. You know, hey, you've been around for a while. I'm, I'm glad to see you've joined the church. You're now part of the team. Find ways to see evidence of God's grace in their life and then tell people that you see it. That's a good thing. Learn how to forgive. There's a variety of things. Lastly, I want to conclude with another passage of Scripture. And I'm just going to take just a minute to talk about this. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Because there is another way, and I think an even more important way, that our speech can bless others. And Paul addresses this in four verses. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Here's what he says. He begins by asking for prayer. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray for me that God will open a door uh, for the message so that I may speak the mystery of the Messiah for which I am in prison so that I may reveal it as I am required to speak. And then he turns around and makes it an admonition. He says, hey, you, act wisely toward outsiders. Make the most of your time. Your speech, listen, should always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person. That's good advice. Paul starts off here with a couple things. He asks three things of believers. He says, number one, commit to praying for me. Pray that I'll get an opportunity that a door will be open. And then pray that I speak the gospel boldly and clearly. He wants, he wants the people that he's writing to to be constantly alert in prayer, devoted to the will of God and aware of the needs of the world. That's what he says in basically verses 2 and 3. But in verse 4, he flips his request into a command. And he says, be careful, be very wise in how you deal with outsiders. Now, outsiders is slang for non-Christians. Why in the world would Paul say, be careful, be wise in your dealing with outsiders? Well, I think it's this. There are plenty of opportunities for outsiders to criticize or gossip about Christians. We don't need to give them any other opportunities. And when you think about the history of the church, we've been called all kinds of things. Uh, You may not know this, but we were called atheists in the first century because we had no idols that we bowed down to. How can you have a God that's a spirit? Everybody has their statue. You guys must be atheists. You don't really believe in a God. We were called um, not patriotic because we wouldn't bow down to Caesar. We wouldn't worship any man. We were called immoral because we met behind closed doors. You know, we shut the windows up, didn't want anyone to see what's going on because of persecution. We were called incestuous because the highest virtue in the Christian faith is love, and we refer to each other as brothers and sisters. We were called cannibals because we eat flesh and drink blood. All kinds of misunderstandings. And so this is the way the church was gossiped about, but as people observed the conduct of believers, they realized all these charges were false. They were made up. They were straw men. And so the truth that we see here is that the reputation of the gospel rests upon the conduct of its believers. Because people may never read this book, but they will read you 24-7. They will see if you live out what you say you believe. They will see if your speech matches what you say you believe. And we come to recognize that a life that is well-lived lays the foundation for a really great and gracious witness when our words and our testimony match up. You know, if you're the guy that tells coarse jokes at the water cooler and then you invite someone to church, don't be surprised if they don't want to go to your church. You know? 
young people, I'll say that here, if you post dumb things on Facebook, um, don't wonder why it's hard for you to get, get respect from older people. Because like, at least if you say it, there's culpable deniability. When you put it on Facebook, you put it out there for the entire world to see forever. So clean up the speech. Be careful what you forward. Be careful what you like. Don't do that because it, it affects your reputation and it's not godly. And so Paul concludes this whole speech uh, by saying the basis for what he wants for his speech, he wants for your speech too. So he says four things in conclusion. He says in verse 4, he says, Your speech, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of your time. Verse 4, your speech should always, always. You know what that means in Greek? Always. All the time. Consistently. Whether you're with one person or with many people. Whether you are with someone who is an equal or someone who's a superior. Oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta talk nice to the superior. Well no, you need to talk nice to your equal and you need to talk nice to people that are lower on the depth chart than you too. Whether you're talking to someone who's rich or someone who's poor. Whether you're talking about sports or something that's spiritual. Your speech should always be glorifying to God. All the time. It should always be what? Verse 4, your speech should always be gracious. Go back to the 40,000 words. 1%? Gracious? I don't know. Let it be gracious. Sometimes we get so eager to be gracious that we become kind of arrogant and forceful. The Bible says we're supposed to know how to interact with people. It says your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I love this. Spice up the conversation. You know, because it's not spicy to talk news, weather, and sports. You introduce a spiritual conversation into your component, and you realize you're now in the deep end of the pool. You don't need Jesus to help you talk about news, weather, and sports. But you start talking about spiritual stuff, you're like, sweet Jesus, help me. I got no idea what I'm doing. Help me find the right thing to say. Help me not to hurt. Have the boldness to throw some salt into your conversation. Be gracious with how you talk about it, but make sure that you add the salt of the gospel. Add some flavor. Get to a point where you're out of your comfort zone. And the truth is, if we did what we were doing, what I suggested earlier, if we learned how to speak God's word to other Christians, that would be a practice that would not abandon us when we're speaking to non-Christians. And lastly, he says, be discerning. He says, uh, your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Be discerning. Be wise. I love the way Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He says, warn those who are unruly. Comfort those who are discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Paul says, dealing with people is not a one-size-fits-all task. If somebody's stubborn, you might need to slap them around a little bit. If somebody's weak, don't slap them around. You'll destroy them. You help the weak. You admonish the unruly. But you're patient with everyone. That's what he's saying here. You've got to know how to answer each person. Our conversations must be opportune in terms of time, but they must be appropriate in regards to the person. So your mission, should you choose to accept it? 
And this message will not self-destruct whether you obey it or not. Just be gracious in your speech this week. Your speech can be uh, words of any sort. Write a letter to someone that you need to encourage. Say something nice and go out of your way. Don't just say something nice to your boss because you hope that will get you the promotion quicker. That's not nice. That's manipulative. Find a way with all of your words this week to be more gracious because we are all a work in progress. We know what our speech was. We know what our speech is. And someday when Jesus comes back, he's going to say, move that bus. And we're going to get to see who he made us to be. And our speech will be different in that day. So we need to do our homework now to be prepared. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for your word. And God, we pray this morning very specifically that you forgive us for our carelessness with our speech. God, if we were paid a hundred bucks for remembering words that we shared yesterday, um, outside of buying a few vowels, we'd be in big trouble. God, we just, we don't know. And we're so cavalier and so easy with the words that pour out of our mouth. And we fail to remember that every word that comes out of our mouth is an opportunity to glorify you and to upbuild our brothers and sisters in Christ. So God, we ask that you convict us to indeed be your disciples, that you send your spirit to empower us, to add more grace and more salt to our conversations, that we will not rest content with negativity or neutrality, but we'll press on to the new life in Christ that you have given us, and that we won't rest content to just simply speaking encouraging words Um, here in the congregation, but that we'll seek to speak gospel words to the entire world. Thank you for what you do for us in Christ. We pray that you empower us to live for you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.